Hello, and thank you for joining me on the Frontier Markets podcast. I'm your host, Krishan Kupchand, and my guest today is Pierre Tachot. Pierre is the co-founder of Supernovae, an NGO and accelerator that helps SMEs grow in post-conflict zones like Yemen and Libya. This is, in my opinion, the frontier of the frontier, and I'm looking forward to learning from Pierre. To kick us off, Pierre, can you give us a bit of a backstory on how you got here and how you got to work on this accelerator? Yeah, it's uh, thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for the intro. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's difficult to explain why I'm here right now. Okay, uh, many journeys don't make much sense. It just just happen and you're there. But but basically, I, I'll try to make it short. Um, um, I had a career before within the entrepreneurship and startup scene in in, in most in Western countries in, in Asia, in, in Europe, and, and in the US. And, and and by chance, I met my my current co-founder. Uh, we was working for a French government agency called Expertise France. And at this time, we were already covering Libya, but we were working for big organizations uh, funded by the EU, by the French governments. As, and at some stage, we felt that being part of a big organizations uh, was not giving us enough freedom or efficiency to be very efficient on difficult countries. Because of course, when you go to Libya, to Yemen, uh, there's a couple of challenges, <laughs> logistic-wise, uh, to get your visa. Uh, you have to be on the ground when you give grants. You have to give cash to 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 to, to young entrepreneurs. So there's many challenges, and and if you're not more like in a bootstrap or, or lean mode, it's difficult to be efficient. So the story is that coming from this entrepreneurship mindset from big companies, we decided to create something of our own to be more efficient on the ground and to increase the impact we wanted to have on those countries. Uh, and then why Libya and Yemen? <laughs> Let's be honest, when you launch a business, uh, you have more chance to raise money in less competitive markets. Uh, so basically, if you want to do something in the US, there will be thousands and thousands of people doing the same thing. Uh, if you want to help SMEs and startups in Libya, in Yemen, well, you have less competition to face, so the chance to raise money is, uh, is easier. It's difficult to execute because, of course, those countries are difficult to reach and there's a couple of challenges, but... But it's a less competitive market, and, and for us, in the specific industry where we are, we have more chance to to to, to get fundings in Ye- in Yemen, in Libya, in Palestine, in this kind of conflict of post-conflict affected countries. So that's one business reason, and also personal reasons. Um, it's difficult to explain because it's more like a metaphysical or emotional reason. Why do I love so much being in Libya, Yemen, Palestine? I don't know. I just I just love to see those people and and. I think the worst thing in my life is to look at myself in the mirror. Every day I wake up, I brush my teeth, I see myself, it's a fucking pain. At least when I'm in France, people look like me. What's the point? When I go to Libya, Yemen and Palestine, at least it's, of course, they like like us. Okay, they want to be happy, they want to enjoy life, but the context is different. So every chat you have is slightly different from what you experience in, in, in Europe, in USA. So just this opportunity to see people who experience different life as myself, I love it. Uh, and that's a huge motivation for me. So that's why I love keep going there. And those people that are so open and they love to chat and I don't get the chance to mix every day with non-local people, I, I find fascinating, motivating, and, and I learned much more the last three, four years working in those countries than I did working in other countries. So it does fulfill my uh, metaphysical, spiritual needs. Uh, which are growing and growing uh, the more I'm getting old, I guess. 
I, I deeply empathize with that. I think I shared a book with you a while back on a similar, yeah. um, on Richard Kapunski. Um, I think his name is Kapuczynski. Um, which, which hits at a similar type of, you know, spiritual adventurous aspiration. And I, uh, yeah, I deeply empathize with that. It's almost going to a new jurisdiction like this, I'd imagine is like when, when a kid, for example, is like at the age of three to seven, they're just learning for the first time what it means to kind of, you know, wobble, walk, and kind of talk for the first time. And there you're learning new languages. You're speaking to people from totally different contexts and you're obviously having an impact as well, which is fantastic. Yes, exactly. Awesome. So in terms of Supernovae's um, operations today, uh, what is the extent of it and what does its kind of day-to-day -day look like? Can you walk us through that? Yeah, yeah I, can, I can give you some insight about uh, Supernova. So basically, Supernova is a French registered NGO with a head office in, in Paris. Uh, we have an operation office in Tunis, in Tunisia. Uh, what I mean is logistic, uh, finance and so on is based in Tunisia. Our main office is in Libya with a Libyan team over there. We have an office in Yemen and we're just opening up an office in, uh, in Gaza. So that's where we are, where, where we are physically right, right now. Um, we get funding from the EU and from the French government. So the EU and the French, they give us money uh, to do specific activities that we agreed before about. So I, I will not go into details about the industry because it could be a bit boring, but that, that's the point. It's like in the private sector, you raise money for a specific reason. So we raise money from the EU, from French, for specific goals. Uh, in Libya, we have three main projects uh, funded by the French and the EU. First one is to help ex-factors, ex-militia, to be uh, economically reintegrated. So as you might know or not, because it's not very famous, but in Libya, uh, you have many militia and, and some of them are providing some services to the, to the people in Libya. You have a couple of militia. It was very useful during the war, maybe, but, but, but many of them want to go back to, to, the, to the civil lives. They want to go back to economic life. So we try to train some of them so they can get a job afterwards. Okay, uh, so that's one project. Uh, it's challenging, of course. Uh, one is to work with... Um, with migrants and, and to help the Libyan government to, to work with migrants and, and to, to register them so they can work and, and have papers. Uh, so we also train Libyan to, to have jobs as well in the community where they are migrants. And the, the, the last one is about startup. So startup is a kind of uh, overused uh, concept. I mean, everybody claims to be a startup. Uh, a guy who's going to, be, to open a shop in the street, we're calling him a startup. So we call it startup, but basically it's more, more SMEs or small, or small businesses. So for the specific project, we create what we call incubators, accelerators, which are spaces where we welcome young guys with ideas or businesses. We train them, we help them to grow their business, to increase their revenues. And the ones who are doing well are getting some money, some grants, so they can, they can, they can carry on and, and grow their business. So that's what we're doing in Libya. In Yemen, we did the same. So in, in Yemen, we're working in a city called Aden. So Aden is in the south of Yemen, uh, on, on the Red Sea. Um, so Yemen is divided into parts, north and south. North, the capital is called Sana. And south, you have Aden, which is a big port uh, on, on the seaside. Here, we created the first incubator. So Yemen has been very much affected by the conflict. So, so they need to create jobs to come back to slowly to a normal life. So we created an incubator. We're going to train 100 young people to come from an ID to a business, and the same as in Libya, we'll give them money so they can grow their business, and hopefully by growing their business, they will offer jobs to the community. And if people have jobs and money, of course, life is easier than if you have no jobs and no money. Uh, it's common sense what I say, but it's, it's critical. So 
Um, business for me is also a way to, to improve your daily life and to improve the life of your community. It's not only about making money and, and making profit and raising a lot of cash. It's about you have a job, you have money, you can feed your family so you feel good and proud about it. And by doing that, you can help your community. And, and when a country has been affected by a conflict, uh, it's not only about giving them medicines or food or whatever. It's about giving them a chance to, to, to get the economy back on track. But if people don't get jobs, they don't get pride, they don't get money, they have nothing, and, and, and you remain in the same situation. So, so for us, economy is not only about making money, it's also about building uh, something that is, makes sense for people, and that's it. Self-esteem. Um, exactly. Can you go, can you go your, into... Your English is much better than mine. Thank you. To, to... <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you go into more detail before getting into the... Um operations of the accelerator can you go into more detail on the retraining that you guys are doing in libya like what are some of the jobs that you're kind of retraining them for what does that process look like are there any stories you can share yeah so so, so it's important to keep it simple and not to overthink so basically we look at the job needs in the market in the within the smes so if we do in tripoli which is a big town the capital you have a couple of so libya is mostly a public system uh, so the private sector is still small but you have some SMEs in, 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 in Tripoli and they have some simple needs. They need salespeople, they need marketing people, they need admin people, they need accountants, they need financial people, everything that is required to run a small business. Mm -hmm. It seems obvious for you because, well, you're based in London, I guess. So in London, if you want to hire a marketing guy, it's easy. You, you, you're going to post a job and you'll get 250,000 guys who are overskilled for it. Uh, in, in Libya, um, it's still challenging to find the right people for SMEs. So we train people to those kind of jobs which are required within SMEs. It can also include logistic, all those jobs basically that you need in, in SMEs. Okay, fantastic. Um, and in terms of the uh, accelerator, can you share some stories of the types of folks that you've been working with, the types of businesses that they've been kind of launching and building in yeah. um, both Yemen and Libya? Yeah, so I, I will take some opposite examples uh, because, of course, as you can imagine, um, we're not acting in the Silicon Valley, so it's not deep tech uh, businesses. We still have some some tech businesses, but but not much. So um, the, the most common stuff are the needs that people have in the market. I work a lot with some fashion designers. Okay, clothes seems obvious, but 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 those guys, I mean those guys, girls. Uh, we, we managed to have them a lot because in Libya right now, to run this kind of business is very interesting. If today, for example, I want to sell this shirt, T-shirt I have on myself in London, it will be challenging. Why? Because to enter the market is difficult, it's expensive, it's very competitive. So my cost to acquire a client is going to be very expensive. In Libya, you don't have much competition. So if you decide to do a T-shirt business, it's going to cost you much, much less than in, 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 in England to sell it. And you have a population with money who is willing to pay for it. So most of the success stories we had were basically e-trade e-commerce. One of the girls I've met three years ago, she started with two dresses. Her business name is called Caraza. She was making maybe 1,000 dinars a month, which is 300, 200 pounds maybe. After three years, she has a team of seven people, eight people, I think now. She makes some good revenue. She's profitable. She got the full sales in the Middle East as well, in the Gulf region. Just because she was she was very accurate, we help her with very simple stuff, uh, with our KPIs. We give her a bit of cash, some grants. So we give her like ten thousand euros the first time, and then again we give her ten thousand euros. So that's not huge money, but that was enough to hire people. That was enough to buy the basic materials and and to have a business that makes sense. 
And again, as the marketing costs are very low in Libya, you can make business quickly and you can increase your business very quickly if, you, if you're smart about it. So that's, that's good stories uh, we, we experience. And we have the same in Yemen. In Yemen, it's a bit... So I was in Yemen four months ago. Uh, so Yemen is... So Libya is a kind of conservative country if you compare to, to London. <laughs> and and Yemen, Yemen even more. And um, it's interesting because when you go there, you still have your uh, Western stereotypes about girls and men and so on. The last time I was in Yemen, I was in a room and, and most of the girls were fully covered. Okay, so I just can see the eyes. And, and as a French guy, of course, I, way, I always need a small moment to adapt myself because I'm, I'm not used to, to speak with girls and just see the eyes. Uh, and, and one of the girls fully covered, she started to discuss. And when she, she named our business, everybody in the room started to be excited, enthusiastic. So this girl that was fully covered, she was owning the biggest toy shop in Yemen. And she was making lots of money and everybody in Yemen knows her, but you cannot recognize her when you speak with her. And, and, and she, she started to explain her journey, how she started with just like two toys. She got a bit of money from, from her family. And she went from like a small shops making like 10 pounds a week to, to, the, biggest, to the biggest in town. So, so what I mean by that, those countries seem challenging, difficult, but the private sector competition is still low. So you still find some guys that you can help very quickly with a bit of cash, a bit of technical assistance, uh, marketing, sales, finance. It can go very quickly. And that's what is motivating because the same amount of money and the same skills, you do the same in, in, in Europe, you're still going to have a huge failing rate within the entrepreneurs. So yeah, that, that's something I find interesting. I, I don't know if I do answer your question, but 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 that's what I can I can share. There's many opportunities for entrepreneurs over there, and with with being very accurate and a bit of cash, you can you can actually change businesses and grow very quickly. Fantastic. What types of growth rates are we talking about here when it comes to some of these businesses? As a growth rate, are huge because you go from zero. <laughs> you go from- <laughs> Fair enough. An infinite growth rate. Um, <laughs> I can I can take two hundred percent of growth rate, but it doesn't mean anything because you go from zero to to not much. So so it just the main difficulty. So you know, in um, I used to be in the startup scene in in Asia and, and Europe, and you had what we call symmetries of, of seed companies. So yeah, you have startups that do the first seed fundraising, so they raise five hundred, one million, two million euros. The things are going to do well, but ninety five percent of those companies they die two years later. So that's the statistic we have. Okay. So, so, so you don't have the same rate in Libya or Yemen. In Libya or Yemen, it's difficult countries, of course, but the faring rate is lower because the cheap to enter the market, the price to enter the market is much cheaper. So if I give you a statistic about the growth rate, it doesn't mean anything because you start from zero, there's not much competition. And right now, there's huge opportunities for young people who are, who are focusing to, to grow business. So yeah, you can, you can have, I, I gave you the example of, I have another guy like that. I met him five years ago. He's selling potteries. I say it well, potteries. Sorry for uh, my pottery, eyes. Pottery, pottery. He, he, was, he was making 10 dinars a month and now he's making 10,000 a month. So you see, the growth rate is huge. <laughs> he multiply by 1,000 his, his revenues. But, but it's, it's normal. There's no much competition. He has two competitors. Okay. Imagine if you sell potteries in... Wherever in Europe, you have 1,000 competitors. Uh, so, so the statistic uh, is difficult to give them because it doesn't mean anything based on your, on your benchmark you have in Europe. Right, okay. So there's a lot of blank space for these new entrepreneurs to 
build industry from scratch, essentially, in this case, exactly. small to medium-sized um, businesses. Exactly. So the most challenging is for the tech companies uh, because uh, you don't have a huge uh, number of coders or tech people in those countries. So one of the most successful um, tech companies in eBay is called Presto. It's a delivery company. So they, they basically they deliver foods, medicine, everything. Uh, the guy is very smart. It's, it's a big company. I think there's more than 200 people right now. So he has tech people, but, but it, the main struggle was to find the tech team, actually, uh, because you don't have many of them. So initially, you have to outsource outside of Libya. But it's not ideal when you have a tech business to do everything outside of your country. So to do a tech company now is not, is not the main risk. The main issue is not the money or the market, because again, the market is, is totally open and there's no competition, is to find the tech people. So you do e-commerce. You, you can do e-commerce through Facebook. Easy, you will sell if you're smart. I mean, if you, if you know marketing. Tech, it will be a challenge. So there's still a huge opportunity in tech because there's not much tech. FinTech as well in Libya, it's starting now. There's not much competition, but... You need to find uh, the right tech people and you need also to face the regulation. When you do e-commerce, I mean, honestly, it's cash on delivery. It's just cash businesses. The regulation, you don't give a shit. You do whatever you want. Uh, so, so that's a change. Tech businesses, it's more difficult. What does the current um, tech landscape slash infrastructure landscape look like? So you mentioned payments are settled in cash very often and Presto is probably like the most popular um, social app. Are there any other attributes um, with regards to how people on the ground that's you know six million people in libya right now how they kind of interact with technology from either a telecoms basis or from like facebook marketplace what are the main kind of uh what, what's your map of things there uh well you, you have two big telecom companies in libya uh but they're from the same group it's uh, public. <laughs> <laughs> they are owned by the same company which is a public company so they do compete but they have the same uh, the same uh, stakeholders so, so uh, the big, comp- the huge companies are public companies. Uh, you have more and more private-owned banks, but but ju- just to make it short, the, the private, the, the banking system is very, is very limited. You cannot withdraw money in the street. You cannot pay with your your, your, your credit card. It's it's a, it's a cash-driven market. Um, so people pay when they, they they on delivery. They pay when they access. And and the most used tool to communicate to sell uh, is Messenger. It's 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 Facebook and, and all the social media apps that you can you can you can you can name, but but um, you don't have lots of local tools, tech local tools. What does the smartphone uh, landscape look like? Are most people using Android phones? Do most people use uh, smartphones? Well, it's, it's different in Yemen and Palestine and Libya. Libyans, the Libyan people have much more money because it's a big all all countries have money so. In Libya, it's like everywhere. They have iPhones, they have every, everything you can think about. In Yemen, of course, it's, it's a struggle much more, so you don't have the same uh, landscape of, of mobile phone. Okay, interesting. In terms of Yemen's um, tech landscape, is the, the main telecom company there, is it also kind of owned by a similar group? Or like yeah, the situation? yeah also, it's also very much a public-driven uh, country. Okay, awesome. So if we're zooming out a bit, um, could you share a bit on kind of like, I, I, I know... This is not necessarily something you may find too interesting, but I'm curious, could you share a bit of the kind of big story or big picture of um, what's kind of happened in Yemen over the last uh, 10 years, slash what you've been seeing on the ground right now? Uh, I'm not an historian, and I started to go in Yemen less than eight months ago. So so now the, the last couple of years have been tough because, as you know, uh, Yemen was in a conflict. And, and when you have conflict in this part of the world, you have some, some groups who are taking advantage of the situations to, to implement themselves. 
so in the, the, the country has been divided in two parts. So the north part, which is managed by a group called Houthi. Uh, Houthi is, uh, <laughs> I don't want to go too political, but uh, they are seen as, as a group of, of terrorists by some countries. Uh, it's a very uh, extremely conservative uh, group of people. So there are cities where women cannot even get out. Uh, so it's, it's, for some people, it's like Al-Qaeda or this kind of, of group, very close. Uh, but but the, the political situation is a bit is a bit difficult to understand because um, the Saudi don't support them. Uh, the Emirati I'm not sure. So so it's very complicated. And, and honestly, it's not that I'm not into politics, but I don't get it. <laughs> so I'm in Libya. I tried initially in Libya to try to understand the political as, aspect of it, but it changed all the time. It's up and down, and then so I stopped listening to it because I I, I never understood it. So but basically, in Yemen, it's divided in two parts. Uh, so you have uh, the Houthi managing the north, so Houthi recognized by some people as a terrorist group. And the south, uh, well, it, it's supposed to be unified, but you have two groups uh, on it. Uh, in Libya, it's different. The country is divided in two parts, east and west. On the east, you have somebody called Haftar, who is General Haftar. He was under Gaddafi uh, before, and he came back to Libya and took control of the east, uh, eastern part of the country. So you just have one guy managing the eastern part. The West is managed by a first minister, but you still have this uh, number of militias uh, who are very active in Tripoli and other cities. Each of them control different uh, parts of the city or business. And you have the south of the country, which is, uh, it seems to be also a country by itself. Uh, so, so that's the way it is right now. So sorry not to give you the big picture of the history of those countries. I, 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 I'm not skilled enough to, to, to tell you that. How does one navigate? I will bring an Eastern with me next time. <laughs> Hopefully, you can get both of you guys on at the same time. That'll be fun. Um, how does one navigate the? As you mentioned, there's there's militia groups, for example, in Libya. How does that kind of impact the day to day of doing business? I, so that's also for, for me. That's just part of the landscape. Um, they're just part of the landscape. So they, they, each of them own a different part of the city. They have their own business. But uh, I should not say that because not all the Libyans will agree with me. But f- for me, again, um, to, to launch a business in Libya now, it's a good moment. Uh, from outside of the country, it seems difficult because you have those militias. Uh, the banking system is down. It's a conservative country, so it makes it difficult sometimes for the girls. But it's a totally open market with people who have money. I don't have other examples in the world. I mean, I've been everywhere, of course, uh, but... But you have a country with no competition in the private sector and with people with high income. And this match of no competition, high incomes, I don't have a clue where you can find it. Because most of the time when you have high incomes, you have high competitions. But this kind of situation is unique. So, of course, when you're in Tripoli, you see some checkpoints, you see some militias, some militias control the airport and so on. But for me, I don't see it as as as, as an hurdle to do business. Uh, again, for me, the main hurdles is to, when you do tech business to find the skills. But if I was Libyan, I, I would launch a business now in Libya. Uh, and and uh, I would prefer to launch an e-commerce business in Libya right now than in England or in New York. Okay. Uh, and when you start to know Libya, you like it and you see the good part of it. So I, I know sometimes we always say yeah, it's difficult and so on. Of course, it's difficult countries, but we're talking now about business. It's, it's full of. We had a slight technical difficulty, but we'll get back to what Pierre was sharing in terms of uh, the opportunities in Libya. Continue, please. 
No, so, so, so my point basically is um, wh when you read the medias uh, covering uh, Yemen, Libya, of course, uh, it's not easy countries for, for many reasons. But, but, but when it comes to business, uh, I see it uh, full of opportunities. Uh, I don't want to make stupid comparisons, but it's like you know, at the beginning in, 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 in America, you get all those guys who went there. It was a full market with nobody and it was full of opportunities. So it's not the same at all, but again, uh, you, you, you have countries which has been mostly public sector driven, which means that most of people have a public uh, sector mindset. So not at all entrepreneurship and business uh, oriented. So if you are one of the few to be business mindset and have this kind of entrepreneurship mindset, you're one of the few. It's, it's, I find it amazing. I remember I, I used to, to be in a startup in Hong Kong myself and we had to raise money and we thought that our idea was amazing. And then we went to the US to raise money, but we were like the number 25 to have the same idea when we met an investor. The VC told us, do you think your idea is amazing? No, it's the same as thousands of people have met before. I say, okay, cool, cool. We're just a nobody within a big market. So, so how, how do you make a difference? And it's, it's difficult. So, um, again, I don't want to, to, to make it sound it's easy in those countries. Life is difficult for different reasons. Um, but business-wise, it's, it's interesting, and, and especially Libya. But, but Yemen also. Uh, so, so that's why I, I think that by uh, helping out people to launch a business, it's also, also a way to improve also the society because the more people have this kind of entrepreneurship mindset, the more they will have this kind of freedom to speak, to discuss more topics. You know, the, those incubators we're launching is also excuse to get people together. So I, I was in Tripoli this week. We launched an incubator. It's great because young people, girls and boys are coming to, to discuss business. But we're not freaks, okay? We don't discuss business all day long. No. <laughs> I think only Elon Musk speaks about business all, all day long. But we don't. And of course, we discuss and, and start to, to meet people who are different. So those incubators also have a very uh, useful social impact and social role is to get people together. When you go to Aden in Yemen, you don't have thousands of, of cafes where you can go and meet girls and boys. Here you have a place. You can say whatever you want. You discuss business, an excuse. And... and uh, I'm not going to say, say it's a dating place, but <laughs> it's a place to meet and, and to mix and, and to discuss other things than what you get in your family and in your community. So um, I might sound a bit naive, but uh, those incubators for me are, are doing much more than business. Uh, they give the chance to people to speak. And that's, that's nice. Wonderful. It's a place for kind of culture to meet and for people to just hang out as well, not just yeah, yeah. get stuff done. Um, fantastic. Getting a bit more technical here. Uh, I'm curious, how does the import and export work in um, Libya, for example? I know Libya exports a lot of oil. Um, and I know you mentioned that there's certain products that are being handmade that are kind of sold. But how do products get into the country? And like, do you have any insight into that landscape? Not much to be honest, but it's, it's, it's uh, Libya rely a lot on import. Uh, so it's different in Yemen, but most of the stuff you will find in Libya are, are not produced in Libya. I don't have the right, but it's huge. Um, and even for oil, they rely on, on foreign companies also. So it's a huge import countries, but it's very small in terms of export because they don't produce much. So they have a lot, most of the business are services business, mm -hmm. but they don't produce goods. Uh, the industry sector is quite small comparing the size of the, the country. And, and again, uh, they, import, they import everything. Are there any businesses 
that you guys have kind of helped um, accelerate or incubate that sell to foreign markets and not just Libyan markets? Yes. Yeah, uh, so I gave you the example of, of fashion designers. So girls doing clothes. Um, so, so basically, some of them started to sell outside of Libya, but it's very specific the style of those clothes. So they don't sell in, in to, 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 to English girls, for example, but they sell mostly in the Gulf. Um, I, I mentioned the guys doing potteries. Uh, he has a very cheap deal producing uh, potteries where he's based. So he started to export. But the first person who bought this stuff were Libyans living outside of Libya. So that, that's also the limit of the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Libya. It's easy to get into the market. It's easy to, to cover the Libyan market, but uh, the products they're producing just fill the need of the market. And they don't have a, a huge value compared to what you, you could get outside of, of, of Libya. So the, the export now, it's, it's, it's very much limited. Okay. And, and in Yemen, in Yemen, they have the best, I mean, I didn't try because I, uh, I don't eat honey myself, but they have the best honey and coffee ever. And comparing to what they export, it's very much limited because, again, it's, it's not well organized, the countries. It's, it's, um, when you get out of a post-conflict, nothing is set to export. And it takes, it takes time. So, so uh, Yemen has the opportunity to export some specific goods. Uh, they have a huge also uh, fish scene in the south of the countries. So they could export fishes, they could, but right now it's, it's very limited. Okay. Sorry, I'm not an import-export expert, so, so I don't want to, to add more bullshit to my, to, my, to my bullshit. No, but I think this is good local on-the-ground knowledge. I appreciate it. Um, okay, final couple of questions here. So one is, uh, I'm curious about the educational institutions in both Libya and Yemen and how they've kind of been impacted right now and how they kind of exist. So do you have any insight into what the landscape of that looks like? What does, you know, I would consider what you guys are building to be also an educational institution that's not typical schools. What does it look like in Libya? What's the typical kind of educational profile? So, so most, most of the people have diplomas. Uh, the high level of education in, in Libya. Um, also in Yemen, the big cities in, in Sana and Aden, high level of education. So, you know, those countries were like kind of, what we call it, communist-driven countries in the past, which means they were, they, they were paying lots of attention to give free education to everybody. Mm. Uh, okay, they pose it as the US, for instance. So, so everybody was going to study, everybody was going to university. Uh, so in, in Libya, in Yemen, you find a lot of engineers, you find a lot of guys who get PhD, you, you find a lot of guys studying economy. So, so, so the level of education is, is, is high. Uh, but the limit of it is, is, is um, it has not been uh, updated, I would say. Uh, so it's still a kind of old-fashioned way to teach, which is very much theoretical. Uh, for instance, you don't have business schools, so you, you can study economy. So you will learn and you will understand the, the big theory of economy and, and so on. So you will be able to, to explain with Adam Smith and, and go through his, his, his journey. But you don't study marketing, sales and, and concrete finance. So that, that's a challenge also. You, you have guys who are highly educated, directly educated, but it does not always match the need of the markets. Because you don't have the system of having internships, you don't have the system of embedding uh, the needs of the market within the universities. So it's good because there's some good base uh, and people are, are highly educated, but it's still disconnected from the needs of the market and from the private sectors. So that's, that's the main challenge right now is to, is to match both, both of it, but people are um, highly educated. 
Oh, there you and some countries are even more impressive. Um, I got the chance to do some missions in, in Iraq and Palestine. In Iraq, it's a very, very highly educated as well. It's very impressive. So now you, you have a high level of education. So, so most of those uh, Arab-speaking countries, you, f- you find highly educated people uh, because the university system was quite good. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite impressive. Can you share more on your time in Iraq? What do you mean? Yeah, the, the pro- any projects you worked on in Iraq, can you share share with us something about that? On the what, sorry? Oh, your, your time in Iraq. Um, Iraq, a, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you have to speak with a French accent, otherwise I get lost. <laughs> uh, no, oh, Iraq, so, um, it, was, it was before uh, we, um, we created Supernova. Uh, I work in Baghdad, in Erbil, which is Kurdistan, and Mosul. Uh, Mosul was very interesting because, uh, as you may know or not, Mosul during a couple of years was uh, managed, <laughs> invaded, I'm not sure how to say in English, by, by Daesh, by, by the Islamic State. Mm-hmm. People from Mosul, they spent a couple of years with those freaks from Daesh uh, managing the city, which means that as a girl, you, you cannot do anything you want. I, mean, it, it, I met some guys from Mosul, it's, it was a very weird experience and a horrible experience. And the city has been destroyed and so on. And when we were in Mosul, um, we worked with uh, a company from Baghdad. So Baghdad, you have lots of very highly educated, skillful people. It's, it's very impressive. Huh? Um, lots of startups raising money. It's, 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 it's impressive. So we worked with some people from Baghdad and we created the first incubator in Mosul. And that was just after a year and a half after Daesh left. And that was, that was amazing because the city was almost destroyed, falling apart. And you have this building, a city, where about 200 young people were meeting every day, discussing businesses, discussing ideas, mixing. Uh, it, it was also, um, this place was an excuse to, to give life again to the city, you know? So the University of Mosul was good to give life again. So there were a few entities in Mosul giving back life and, and giving back people trust they can go out. Because, of course, after Daesh left, some people were still scared because they thought they might come back. Or some people from Daesh were still in Mosul. So, of course, you shit yourself because those guys were, were very aggressive. And they were, so, 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 slowly and slowly, you have to create those spaces where people can go and, and feel confident and feel the trust. So, so Iraq was, was very interesting, especially for this project in, in Mosul. Honestly, I did very little myself. But, but I find it very interesting because, again, uh, by, by building this kind of, of, of entity, by building those places where business is an excuse to meet, you can give back life to people which has been affected by conflict. You can give back trust to people and, and you give back the opportunity to people to, 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 to be human being again and to enjoy their life. So, so Iraq was, was very um, interesting for that, to, to go specifically to Mosul. Baghdad was impressive because I was surprised by the, by the level of the startup scene, by the amount of money they raised, by the quality. I mean, Baghdad was impressive, but, but Mosul was a different story. It was typical... Typically, a post-afflicted city who suffered a lot. And uh, what, what can you do? Wonderful. Um, for folks who are listening who have a similar spiritual and adventurous inclination, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, and they either want to participate as investors or operationally, what kind of suggestions would you have for folks from outside? As investors, you mean? Um, one, as investors, and then separately uh, for folks who just maybe aren't investing but just want to participate in this generally. first of all yeah um, so investing in 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 libya yemen is difficult 
So you have small businesses, but you don't have a track record of exit. I mean, there isn't any startup that sold the business and made money out of it. And you also have an issue of liquidity. So if you invest in a Libyan registered company, <laughs> to get back your money, honestly, good luck. So, so um, the, the, the Libyan startup that raise money, they're registered outside of, of Libya, in Turkey, in the Netherlands, in Delaware, in the US. So as an investor, of course, that's the first step. But, but they are almost, I, I met once a VC fund that invested in, in Libya, but it was in 2011, just before Gaddafi uh, was kicked out. So of course he lost all his money. Yeah. Uh, um, but, but as an investor, it's interesting because the equity is cheap, but it's highly risky. So if you have the balls to be the first one to go, uh, honestly, you'll be the first one, uh, in, in, in Yemen and, and Libya. Now in Libya is getting better. You, you might get the first VC funds that will be uh, launched from, with some Libyan guys. So Libya, um, in the next 12 months, two years, maybe there will be some opportunities for, for investors who are bold enough to, to go there. Uh, as long as the Libyan companies are registered outside of Libya, uh, and you can have a plan of exit if you have some corporates who wants to, 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 to move to, to Libya, because it could be a good way to, to have a first step over there. Yemen, it's, Yemen, it's, it will take a bit more time. I would say three, four years time. Uh, I discussed that with our country director in Yemen and he thinks the same. He thinks it's, it's we should start getting this uh, fundraising mindset in Yemen so they understand it and so on. There's people in Dubai, the Emirates, so these, they might look at investing in Yemen, but uh, it will take a bit more time than, than Libya. And is a, a young guy you want to discover those countries, uh, don't go by yourself. <laughs> don't take your car or boat and go by yourself. Uh, don't advise to do that for different reasons. No, just work for NGOs. Uh, there, there are many NGOs. Uh, it, it depends what you know. You, you have big organizations working there, like the United Nations and so on. But if you're a bit more adventurous, I would say join an NGO because you'll be much more on the ground and you do a bit less paper. So, so there are NGOs in those countries, mostly humanitarian NGOs. So that helps people, give them food and so on. But I never done that myself before, but that's an amazing experience to be on the ground. So, so uh, I would just advise to, 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 to join a, a small, medium-sized NGO and, and, and you discover those countries and you will see if you like it or not. Wonderful. Um, final question here, any recommended readings or resources for folks who are listening to this? I know we have a shared interest in kind of novels and stuff. <laughs> I, actually, I don't, I don't have any books to advise. I mean, there, there, there are some, there, there's some fictions. So I, I read fiction myself. I don't read history or economy, but, 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 uh, there are some fictions taking place in Yemen in Aden. Because Aden actually, uh, for the French literature was famous because, you know, we have a French poet from the 19th century called Arthur Rimbaud. And Arthur Rimbaud ended up in Aden and he was there. After being a poet, he was, he was selling guns and he was, he was, he changed totally his life and he, he was in Aden. So, so there are stories about Rimbaud in Aden, which are quite nice. Uh, and, and you have a French adventure guy which called uh, Henri de Montfray and he used, he used to, he used to be between, uh, this part of Africa and, and Yemen, and he wrote many stories about this part of the world uh, during the 19th centuries. And it's quite interesting because it was a wild, wild west at this time. So it's quite interesting. About modern Yemen, I don't know. I didn't see it. Uh, Libya, I just read once a book about Libya fiction. It's called The Wanderer. It's, it's, it's a funny book. It's very nice, but it will not tell you anything about Libya. So I'm sorry 
uh, I have no devices. <laughs> no, I, I think those are great recommendations nonetheless. I enjoy reading fiction before I go to a country as well. Um, all right, I think that's it, Pierre. Uh, thank you so much for making the time for the interview. It's been wonderful, learned a lot, and I'm sure listeners will appreciate this as well. Thank you for your time. It was great. See you. Bye-bye.